This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. It's brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. With me in the studio today is probably WA's leading golf coach at the moment. Richie Smith has Minji Lee, Minwoo Lee and Hannah Green under his tutelage. Welcome to the show, Richie. Thanks, mate. Nice to be here. Tell us, you grew up in Western Australia? I did. So where did you grow up and how did you become involved in golf? Uh, I grew up in Bull Creek, so um, so not not too far away. Um, My first... uh, first involvement with golf was actually going out with my dad who was a member of Melville Glades as a kid that was probably 10 years old. I went out with a, uh, a putter and a two on and that, that was my set. And, um, I had 88 shots <laughs> and I wasn't very good. And, uh, but that was my first involvement. Yeah. So 88 shots for 18? No, 88 for nine. 88 for nine. Uh, okay. I still remember 88, two, uh, two fat ladies. So, um, two iron and a putter, you say? Yeah, I wasn't very good out of bunkers. I was going to say, <laughs> bunkers would have been very challenging. Was there golf talent in the family? Uh, my dad played off about 13, but um, my dad was a cricketer. And my brother was a cricketer and footballer. and um, Yeah, my dad played um, A-grade cricket. But no, I, I mean, he was a good, he was actually a pretty good golfer. He was the club champion of Derby. So, you know, I probably had five members. Yep. But um no, not really. It's just a, it was just something that we did after school and came okay at it. And was it always going to be golf or what, what other sports did you play? Uh, I love my footy and my cricket. Uh, golf was probably my third choice for a long time. And um, I wasn't very good at football, but I, I used to love it. And uh, cricket I was a bit better at, but it got, it got the better of me cricket after a while. And um, yeah, golf took over. So describe yourself as a footballer and describe yourself as a cricketer. Uh... Always around the pack, not underneath it in, at footy. Um, very small, very small for You're my age. Outside uh, midfielder, perhaps? Outside midfielder. I'd be, I'd be saying uh, back pocket specials <laughs> <laughs> without, the, without the knuckle. Uh, cricket, I would say I batted for first change bowler. Uh, yeah, I was all right at cricket, but uh, I wasn't that good. Did you bowl with a draw or a fade? I actually bowl, I could bowl with both. Yep. Still can. I still play indoor cricket. So, um, but yeah, I love my cricket. So when did, when and how did golf take over as your, as your primary sporting pursuit? Um, well, my dad was a, a bank manager. And as with other bank managers or all bank managers, they travel. So we ended up getting a posting in Kalgoorlie. And um, up the road from Kalgoorlie or where we were living was uh, the golf course, Kalgoorlie Golf Course, uh, Sand Greens. It doesn't exist anymore. And I used to get on my bike, pull a second-hand set of clubs along on my bike and go down and play a couple of holes. And to be honest, I think I spent the whole time looking for golf balls so I could just give them to Dad at the end of the day. But um, I might have played five or six rounds up there and got to meet a few people. And then when we came back to Perth a couple of years later, I joined Melville Glades and loved it. So it sounded like you were a pretty decent cricketer. What happened to your cricket? Uh, oh, I think I just got a bit scared. Um, Mark, I think... Um, I was, I was 12 years old playing in Kalgoorlie and doing pretty well. And then I think, um, the club decided that I was actually all right at this and they'll put me up and 
I ended up finding myself in the under-18s final because uh, I was short of players and um, I was batting 11 and, and not bowling. <laughs> and uh, I remember facing up to – I faced two balls in that final and, and the first ball whizzed past my ears at about 100 miles an hour. I didn't see that one. And the second one I edged through slips and um, and then the next ball the guy got out and I was so thankful. So you were, you were red ink. I was red ink. I'm, I'm out. I, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, not out in under-18s. But that was the end of my cricket career. I was, I was scared. and I shouldn't have been put up to that level. And um, it's actually something that's helped me with my coaching. So early days in golf, yeah. describe yourself as a golfer. Um, always the third best player. Um, you know, at the time I had a, had a really good player at my club that was the same age and he was a national representative. I had another kid that was probably a state representative at the same age and I was the third best. And, um, it didn't matter how much I worked at it. They were always better than me, but they were always bigger than me too. So I didn't actually take into consideration that the size of me had a big input on, on my success. And then when I started to get a bit bigger and stronger and I actually caught up with them and. In the end, uh, one of them moved away, but I, I, I jumped the other fella. So I ended up being the second best at the club. <laughs> so when you came back to Perth, you, did you go back and play at Melville or was there yeah, another I did. course? I did. Yep. Yeah, I did. I was, a, I was a member at Melville for 30-odd yeah, years. Yep. Um, yeah, I loved the place. And how often did you play when you were at school? Like, How often did you get out on the course? I would be there every day. Yep. Yeah, I would be there every day. So we would do... You know, your school day and then you'd catch a bus home from school, get to the golf course at 4.30, stay till dark and that was my daily routine. And if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't footy training or, or, or golf, I don't know what I would have been doing. Did you get the putter out around the house and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, I did, did. Um, put a big ding in my dad's car. <laughs> it was pretty, <laughs> a brand new car. But yeah, yeah, we played around the house. and Actually, I was over the road from a park and um, we used to play. I think that's actually where I learned to play, over at the park, over the road. I uh, couldn't do it nowadays, but. Mm. So, what about um, the strengths and weaknesses of your game? You you mentioned you were you were smaller, so I'm presuming short game was something you had to fall back on a bit. Uh, back then, yeah, I I had a I was a pretty good putter, and um, it's funny because I I feel like when I look back on my playing career, I felt like my short game was almost my weakness, but everyone else used to tell me it was my strength. So. Um, I think is the, the my short game was actually the thing that ended up being the thing that stopped me from being a um a really successful pro, but um yeah I think I just hit it straight and technically I was relatively sound and yeah good putter. Who taught you? I think uh, at a young age my dad taught me. Yep. So and I think that that's been uh, lost on a lot of people nowadays that your parents should teach you. Um, if they teach the right way. Uh, apart from that, Ross Metherall at Collier Park was my state coach and um, then Bruce Hay out at Cottesloe Golf Club when I actually did turn pro. Were you a fast learner? I was a good learner. Like I still remember the, the lessons that I've been taught. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm really good with words. So I remember what people say and I remember um, feels around movement but I wouldn't say that I was um, an exceptional learner, no. What piece of advice from any of those people stands out to you as the thing that stayed with you as a, A, as a player, but B, as a coach? Um, 
good question. I think um, just be true to yourself. Don't try and do things you can't do. I mean, I remember talking to people about Tiger Woods and Tiger couldn't draw a three wood, so he never tried to do it. Yep. So, um, yeah, just don't try and do things you can't do and be accepting of the things, you know, work towards your strengths, use your strengths, and I think that's the best advice anyone can give you. In terms of dreams at that age, did you dream of becoming a, a successful tournament pro? Is that was what your sporting aspiration was? No, no, I never, I never actually anticipated being a... Um, yeah, I wanted to be Don Bradman for a while there. Yeah. And I, you know, if I ever did a school assignment, it would be on Don Bradman. Um, but I think uh, back then I just wanted to be the club pro at Melville Glade. So, you know, as such was my love for the place. And, um, yeah, it was a, yeah, that was my, that was my dream. The only time I've ever played at Melville Glades, it was 47 degrees. So I don't have overly fond memories of it. What's, what, what do you like about Melville Glades as a course? Uh, I don't really, you know, I, people have asked me that question before. I don't think it's the course. I think it was the people. I really love the people there. Um, and you know, golf is not, it's often it's not about the golf course you're playing. It's the people that you're with, right? Yeah. So, um, I just loved the people there. I thought they were my type of people. Did you at some stage get an inkling, you know, just when you're a school kid playing a lot that you were, you were going to be okay at it? Um, yeah, I guess, so. Uh, you know, as a state, I played state golf yeah. and, um, how old were you in, when that first happened? I would have been 19. Right. So I wasn't, I wasn't an early bloomer. Um, I, you know, I never actually played in the state senior team, which at the time there was three levels. There was junior Colts and seniors. And, um, I thought that I'd done enough to get into that senior team. I didn't quite make it. And, uh, I played three years at Colts level, which was 19 to 22. So what, let's say you're a 15, 16 year old kid playing a lot of golf. What, what handicap were you playing at at that stage? Oh, I think I was on plus one, plus two. Yep. Um, I remember, um, I got down to about a two handicap and, uh, yeah, I was, I was okay. I was a state level golfer. Yep. And then, uh, my father got sick, got a brain tumor and died. And it took uh, about four months for that to happen. So I went from a two to a four handicap in that time. And I think I was working to be, I was at uni and I was studying to be, um, an accountant. So, and then, yeah, he passed away and about a month later I was on plus one. I'd left uni. Um, I'd found things that, you know, I just didn't want to be working behind a desk all my life. And yep. I'd found a, another avenue to, to, to go down and I really enjoyed it. Did that, obviously an event like that leaves a, a massive mark and an imprint on your life, doesn't it? And um, you felt like it altered the course of your life perhaps? There's no question it altered the course of my life. Like my father worked really hard in his job yeah. and um, you know, hardly had a sick day and then got sick and then was gone. And, you know, I felt like that was not, that was not what I wanted for my life and that's not what I want for any of the people I'm associated with either. I want them to, tra you know, chase their dreams. How old was your dad when he passed? He was 53. And you were how old at that time? 19. 19. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Richie's representative career as an amateur uh, golfer and he's uh, dipping his toe in the water on the tour. 
This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little moments are everything. With me is Richie Smith, renowned WA golf coach. We've gotten to the point, Richie, in your career where you're through school and you embark on a, on a pretty successful representative career as a, as a young amateur. Who first recognised you as a, as a golfing talent for representative golf? I think my coach at the time, Ross Metherill, was the state coach. And uh, I think he was the one that um, noticed that I was going okay. I, I think, you know, when I reached that age, maybe six, 17, um, you know, I got a bit stronger and he noticed that my swing changed a little bit. And obviously there's lag time between science, physical development and performance. And, you know, at that age of 19, I really took a leap forward after my father passed. And then, um, yeah, made Colts level golf, which was um, – yeah, it was great. I love mistake golf. Who were your um, your compatriots, if you like, in the WA team? Anyone we would know or yeah, remember? Uh, yeah, I was playing against Greg Chalmers and uh, Jared Mosley, who ended up being a European Tour player. Uh, Kim Felton, a European Tour player. They were all in my sort of um, my my peers. They were better than me. Way better than me. They were better than you. Yeah, they, were, they used to flog me. So how did you feel when you were playing against them? Did you feel like you could hold your own or did you did you feel a bit out, outgunned and outmanned by them? Uh, I remember playing um, I remember playing Greg Chalmers at a, at a state championship at Carinup and, I, I, you know, I was, I'd shot two under or something and lost five and four. And so he's seven or eight under after 14 holes. That was a bit of a wake-up call. And I also remember playing uh, Brett Rumford. You know, the whole time I'm hitting it better than Brett. And Brett's renowned for his short game. And yep. I'm, I'm flogging him from tee to green. And I'm losing badly. <laughs> and, um, you know, as at that stage, I knew I had deficiencies. And um, I never really overcome, overcame them, I guess. What was your favourite moment as a, as a young amateur golfer? I think I'd have a couple. I think um, winning winning a national title with the state Colts team, which I captained, um, was a was a great achievement. Um, so, w- when did that happen? I reckon that happened when I was nineteen or twenty. Mm-hmm. It was at Mount Lawley Golf Club. Uh, I felt good about it because I went through. Um, I won a lot of my own matches, individual matches, as a captain, and at, and at, and at the number one position. And I felt like the team could rely on me to get a result for them. So I was, I was quite happy with that. And, you know, in golf, it's an individual sport, but to win as a team, it's a different thing. And also like, you know, when I was at the same time, Melville had been a, a very, very poor club historically as a, as a competitor. And, you know, we were way behind the Royal Perths and the Royal Fremantles and we made it up into the top division. Which, you know, we never won at the top division, but we certainly won at the lower divisions. And, you know, I was playing number one for that team and beating the other state players. And that was really important to me. Um, 
that our club got up there. How fierce are those contests, the pen and golf around around Perth, in amongst the the top clubs? Back then, it was really fierce. Yep. Yeah, back then it was really fierce. You knew the week out who you're playing. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to beat those people, and um, you know they're still my friends. I still wanted to beat them. It's changed a bit now. It doesn't exist like that anymore. You know, because the kids are travelling internationally. Half the pennants players aren't available because they're away. But um, back then it was it was fierce. That would have been a critical part of the talent development pathway, I would imagine, for for young golfers back then. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, and it's something that we're missing. We're missing that. Um, we're missing a lot of country kids coming to Perth, and um, we're missing that hard club competition that you used to get. And you know. I don't think some of the young players recognise that some of these older guys that are 50 or 60 are really very clever. And they may not hit it as good, but often they'll win. Yep. And, um, yeah, I'd like to think that I bring a little bit of that to our relationships. So you represented WA in a number of teams. Apart from playing in championships here, where, where else did you go? Oh, I've been all over, all over the country. Um, but specifically with those teams? Yeah, specifically with teams and, and you know, tr- travelling, chasing um, individual tournaments, you know, Australian amateurs, that sort of stuff. You're always all over the country. Well, yeah, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been in the state. Never went uh, international, though, because um, I just couldn't afford it. And um, back then, the world was a lot bigger place than it is now. What's your favourite course outside of WA? I think Kuyonga in South Australia. I think Kuyong is a wonderful golf course. Is that the one with the railway track through the middle? Uh, that's Royal Adelaide, and that's very close to it as well. Yep. Yeah, I think Adelaide is um, a remarkably good venue for golf courses. What's special about Kuyonga, do you think? I just think it's got a really nice vibe. I think there's a nice mixture of um, rolling sort of topography and um, sandbelt-looking golf course. Uh, it's hard. It's bare. I just think it's a wonderful place. You mentioned that in your school days, you didn't really have ambitions to be golf pro to make a living out of it, that sort of thing. You thought you'd, you'd do something else, and then your your father's passing changed all of that. At, at playing representative golf, as you did, did you ever, you know, turn your mind to to higher honours, to going on the tour, to to being a touring professional? Well, part of part of trying to be the club pro at Melville, I had to do a traineeship. Yep. And so, um, and a traineeship is a three-year course, learning how to teach or do the business side. And I actually ended up having a really successful traineeship. And I think... You were trainee of the year, is that right? I was a player of the year. Right. I did that three times, national. Yep. National player of the year. And, you know, the first year, I had a real year out of the blocks and I, I still think my average stands now is the lowest one in history for Australia anyway and um so you keep hang on you keep talking about yourself as like you weren't very good and that you were good enough to do that yeah but you know it's different being really good on a club course to being really good on a championship course and I, I lacked the assets both strength and, and, and short game assets to really compete at a, at a higher level. So I was, um, I was a big fish in a little pond, you know, I was almost like a, a bully on a, on an easy golf course. <laughs> so, 
Um, and I think I had a couple of results, you know, I had shot, um, a 59 and a 60 and I shot a, a few 62s, um, on easy golf courses, on relatively easy golf courses. And they made me look a bit better than I was, but I, deep down I knew. 59 is a pretty special club though, isn't it? Do you, yeah, do you yeah. feel entitled to membership to that club? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, there's not many of us here and it was in a professional event, so it, it really happened, but, um, it's, where, a long, it's a long time ago, Mark. When did that happen? And where did that happen? That happened in South Australia and that happened in 2001. On what course? Is it Murray Bridge in, in the Adelaide Hills? Did you win? Yeah, one by a few. I'd like to think you won. <laughs> one by a few. <laughs> 59. Yeah. Do you have a sort of a, a favourite memory as a scalp you took as an as a amateur colt in competition, interstate competition? Uh, not really. Not really. I just love beating the Vicks. So um, it didn't really matter who it was as long as they were Victorian. I was pretty happy beating them. Um, yeah, and Does that come back to footy, the old footy rivalry, does it? Or? No, I just, I think, uh, you know, I think WA doesn't like getting beaten by those Eastern Staters. So um, every state has a different personality. You know, Queenslanders are uh, arrogant and, well, this is how I take it. And Victorians are, are spoiled and New South Welshmen are just, you know, a, yeah, they're a big, big state and they, they think they're a big state. So actually, to be honest, it didn't really matter if it was an Eastern State or I just like winning. So what about South Australians? You've left them off. I like South Australians. Yeah. You like the courses? You like <laughs> yeah. South Aussies? Yeah, and had some success in South Australia. It's probably why I like it so much. But um, Are they far enough west to not count as well, they're probably, East Coasters? They're yeah. probably more like us than those Eastern Staters, right? How did, how did Queenslanders get to be arrogant? Well. A lot of golfers, I guess, from Queensland, I suppose. I just, I've always found them arrogant, so I just love beating them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being a leader of those teams, yeah. what extra responsibilities did that entail and how did that help your development as a person and later as a coach? Um, I just think that the leader, leader doesn't necessarily have to be the best golfer, but they have to be the most um, approachable, most consistent and provide um, a platform for you to actually say something if you want to say something. And, um, I was lucky that I was playing one at the time, which helped my status within that team. But I always felt like I was a fair leader and I stuck up for my team. And, you know, we had, you know, golf at that time was, as you said earlier, a bit fierce and we had dust ups within games against other states. And, you know, I always felt like I stuck up for my team. Um, and it's something that I think I've brought into my coaching as well. Like my team is everything that my team that I have around me and my players are everything. And I won't, um, I won't have anyone speak ill of my team regardless of what they do. Um, I think that's really important, but that's, I guess that's what I've learned from captaining those teams. We'll take another break now. This is inspiring sports stories with Mark Duffield. We are brought to you by Bauer and O'Day with me in this studio is Richie Smith, WA's renowned golf club. Bauer and O'Day, don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We're talking to Richie Smith, renowned WA golf pro, and we're at the stage, Richie, where you've had a successful representative amateur career and you go out on the tour as a pro. Describe that, that period of your life. I think that period was a little bit dark, to be honest. I um, I had fallen into a career of playing because my performance had improved by so much that I almost couldn't avoid it. I'd also um, I'd been given a scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport as a player, and um, yeah, I played against all these young guys there that really were better than me, and um, I was able to be smarter than them, so I beat them a fair bit, but they're actually better than me. And as soon as they got the smarts, they were going to keep beating me. So then I, I fall so, into... So which contemporaries are we talking about? Um, uh, James Nitties and Aaron Price, who went on to be quite good golfers, Aaron, Adam Bland. and They're probably... Um, you know, James was a PGA Tour member and Aaron Price played PGA Tour. And there's a few other players there that were probably better than those two, but a little bit lazy. I won't tell you their names, but, um, yeah, yeah, sort of fell into this career of playing and I followed, um, I followed the pro-am circuit around for a while and, and, you know, after this really successful amateur career, I was highly regarded. You know, I was one of Srixon's, I was sponsored by Srixon at the time. I was one of their five players that they saw as being their flag bearers and, you know, four of them were internationals and then there was me. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. I just couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle, first of all, playing without any money. Couldn't handle being away from my home. Couldn't handle the pressure of being, you know, supposedly good. And that um, had an effect on me because, you know, I, I couldn't wait to stop playing. Did you play the main tour or did you play the back tours? Where, where, were, where were you playing? Were you I, playing in the cities or were you playing in country towns and that sort of I thing? I was playing pro-ams and... Um, secondary events and I think um, I played one one or two main tour events um, unsuccessfully I remember actually turning up to my first tournament and Greg Norman was there it was just me and Greg on the range and I shanked two over his head and um, <laughs> and he didn't get to see a third because I left <laughs> so um, that was at Royal Queensland so yeah it's um, I wasn't I was nowhere near good enough to be and nowhere near mentally strong enough to be so I'd talk my way through it and and I just shouldn't have been there. Did that experience shape you at all as a coach, do you think? Yep. I remember walking around. So I was AIS scholarship holder. We finished our year. And I remember walking around a, a four-kilometer track with the sports psychologist at the time. And I just told him everything he wanted to know, not everything he needed to know. Yep. And um, I hope that with my, my players, I have um, given them enough confidence in me that they can tell me the truth whenever they're feeling there's a problem and um, and if they're not telling me the truth, I can get it out of them anyway. So you told him everything you think he wanted to know because you felt that telling him the truth would adversely affect your your, your standing? Is that what yeah. you thought? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do you think it would have or do you, like, do you think that was a the sort of um, relationship that they fostered at that time or was that just you not understanding how the system should work? I think that was just me understanding that um, it was okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you can class it as a, as a weakness on my behalf. 
but maybe it wasn't educated enough either. So, but certainly in professional sport, if you're not vulnerable, you're not succeeding. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't, I wasn't capable of being vulnerable at that stage. How long did you stay out on the, on the tour? Uh, two years, two years. And then, uh, then, um, my wife got pregnant and that was the greatest excuse to give up playing ever. So I gave it up. How much money did you earn? That Stuff two years? all. Stuff all. Stuff all. My wife, who was a uni student and doing a little bit of, um, bit of teaching was the, the main breadwinner and I was, yeah, I was not making any money. And how did you get around? Like, how did you get from event to event <laughs> and place to place? Well, we shared a lot of cars. Yep. Um, you and the other players? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of guys out there that were trying to avoid getting a job as well, like me. And, um, yeah, we just, we shared cars and shared rooms and just got by. I think in a previous interview, you talked about a moment where you'd played around and you realized, no. Nah, it's not for me. Was there a moment, a, a, a particular moment? Was it the, the the birth of a child or or was it, um, you know, something different, a round of golf that, that triggered, okay, I need to do something different? Uh, I think I played at, um, I don't know if it was a particular point in time, but certainly the birth of, uh, well, getting pregnant sort of finished my career. But I know I played down at Portland in the, um, on the southern coast of Victoria and I think I Shot 69, came third, probably lost money. Um, yeah, that's enough. You know, I can't keep going away. Like, I can't chase a dream that's really not really achievable with the skills that I have and leave a, ba- a family behind. And, um, yeah, I was being selfish, so I just – that was enough and made the decision and came home. And having made that decision, was it always going to be you were going to be a golf coach or how did that evolve? I was never going to be a golf coach. I was going to be a, a club pro because right. that was my goal. Yep. And so I ended up being um, coming home and taking the only job I could, which was the um, I was going to be a teaching pro at the Gosnells Golf Club, which I did for two years. I loved it. And um, nice course, Gosnells. Great golf course and great people. And um, during that time, I think I was back for maybe I don't know three or four days from Victoria, and then. Um, the state ladies coaching role came up and no one else applied for it. And I got it. Now at the time I'd given one lesson, mm-hmm. I'd had experiences, but I'd given one golf lesson. And, um, yeah, I, uh, that was the thing, I guess that's changed my direction, but you know, I still only wanted to be a club pro. Yeah. And I thought that this state coaching role would help me get to that state, that club pro job that I wanted. If there was one thing you wanted to be as a golf coach, what was it? Your overriding guiding light, if you like. Um, I wanted to care and I still do. So I just want to make sure that the players that are investing in me feel like they're the most important people. And do you think you've managed to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I do actually. I feel like I am, you know, I don't, I have a lot of loyalty toward me with my, um, with my clients and um, hopefully they feel the same. Is there one technical aspect of the game you think you're strong on as a, as a teacher? Not really. No, I don't. I don't I've, I've always um, been uh, quite negative about my ability technically. I think right, you know, right now I'm, I'm okay. I've, you know, I've been around the system for 22 years or something. I'm 
getting quite good at it now. But um, certainly initially I was very poor technically. I didn't know anything. And um, I've just bobbled my way through and had a bit of success on on culture rather than technique. Yep. How did the, the coaching thing evolve for you? So you took the job as the, the state women's coach. What, what happened from there? Um, first year, so the women, um, and I loved working for the women because they're progressive and they, they there was no egos. So the women had won, I mean, one or two series in 90 years of being involved. And the first year my squad was made up of, I think the youngest player in my squad was 18 and the oldest was probably 40. So um, the first thing I did is I did a beep test and pretty unpopular at the time. <laughs> um, and uh, I found out through that who was actually going to put in. So we selected a team based upon, yeah, a little bit of um, skills work, but um, mainly attitude. And um, we instilled a different, you know, we started doing mission statements and we started doing cultural stuff. and all of the stuff you would think that would get done, but just didn't get done in those days. And, um, we changed the personnel a lot. The first year we had a lot of problems. We had a lot of problems. Um, but then it turned into, you know, the next year, the oldest player in my squad was 18 and uh, we had kids as young as 11 years old in that squad. And that year we won. So we went from having the oldest squad to the youngest squad in a year and, and winning a series, which hadn't been done for, I don't know, 40 years. We'll take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the stars you've got under your tutelage now and, and uh, how they've developed as young players and young people. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We're with Richie Smith, WA's renowned golf coach. We're brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We're talking to Richie Smith, WA's renowned golf coach. And we're up to a point where you're coaching Richie you sort of like decided what sort of coach you want to be. Tell us when you first ran into Minji Lee, Hannah Green and Min Woo Lee. Well, Minji, Minji was one of the kids that we brought in at a young age. Um, when we sort of changed the way, the dynamic of the actual squads that we were running. So I like to bring in maybe three development players, tell them at you know, you can't, you're not going to make the state team. So you're here just to learn, just learn. We brought her in at 10 or 11 years old to the state senior squad. So this is a squad full of older people. And, um, yeah, she, she just looked different to the rest of them. Like you can just tell with the eyes, like they, good eyes, uh, yeah, you can't buy good eyes and that they look through you and they're, they're, they're trying to absorb everything. And, um, I tried to make sure that we brought in always development players that had those eyes. And, um, yeah, she was just a, a cut above everyone else. And, you know, four years later, she's best player in Australia, playing in the state, you know, playing in the national championship final as a 14-year-old. And two years after that, playing in the last group of an Australian Open. And now, you know, world beater. 
Did you help define her swing or was Minji swing always her swing? I think we tightened it up a lot. I think she had um, a swing built on um, repetition. You know, she'd just done it a lot when we got her. And, you know, I was coaching her as an individual by the age of probably 12. Um, she had some worrying movements that, you know, with that sort of repetition were going to break down and they were, she was going to get injured. And, um, yeah, I think that she her golf swing has changed remarkably. Certainly, even in the last five years, it changed remarkably to now, you know, it's probably one of the best swings in the world. Not a lot of moving parts in that swing. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's back and back and forwards. Yeah. Was that what you were aiming for, or is that just well, the way it's evolved? We just like the, if we have um, more ground force, which is created by more stability, then you have the ability to create torque. And so, um, yeah, and we know when I say we, my, the team that we operate within, we know that power is probably the greatest asset. And you know, she's only five four. So we need to make sure that she is as efficient as possible and she's able to hit it as hard as possible. And if she can't hit it hard, then, um, well, if she's moving all over the place, she can't hit it hard. So she can hit it hard now. <laughs> yeah. same, what, same with Hannah. Too. So to, to tell us about Hannah, when did you first see her? Hannah, about the same time. She was probably in the intake that, that um, Minji was part of. So at the age of 12, I, I started coaching her and, she was probably a 15, 16 handicapper back then, you know, playing in the state squad. Um, and, you know, Hannah, Hannah was always behind Minji. Like everyone saw Minji as being this, this world beater. And she was, she was a world beater. But, you know, Hannah was like the little engine that could. She was just sitting there in the, the in behind, probably the third best player in the squad. And then um, at the age of 17, she played in the New Zealand Open. And she played well, and um, she ended up being paired with Lydia Coe in the last group. And no one had ever heard of Hannah at this stage. And Lydia's the world number one. Lydia shoots 68. Hannah shoots 68. Hannah comes second to Lydia Coe. And then everyone started to take notice. But, you know, she'd been, you know, Minji had been shooting 22, 23 under for four-round events as a 17-year-old, and Hannah would be shooting 12 and 13. But no one actually realised that actually – that score is still better than the best, the second best ever. And, um, yeah, she's she's a good player now. She's a good player now. Do you pinch yourself that WA has produced two of the world's best female golfers? Yeah, I do. I do. I think um, we're, we're fighting well above our um, where we should be. But I also see no reason why we can't do it continuously, and I see no reason why WA can't be the best at everything. It's just it's it's not about um, it's not about our size. It's about you know doing things efficiently and, and fighting harder. You know we have some assets being so far away as well, and that um, to get good and to be successful, you've got to be real good. And so people work harder. Min Wu Min Wu Lee's a little bit different to his sister. He's a different cat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are, what were your first impressions when you saw him? Um. Lazy, never practiced. But I'm also, remember, I'm looking at his sister who's a 13-hour-a-day golfer at the age of 12, and then I'm looking at him as a, you know, a one-hour-a-day max. Um, and he's, um, he's yin to her yang. You know, she's 
very professional, robotic, and he's artistic and explosive and um, he's annoying and she's lovely. And <laughs> I don't say that in a bad way. I say uh, he's just, he can't concentrate and she can concentrate forever. It's just, they're just totally different. But they're also really similar in that they're very loyal and they're, um, you know, now he's working out the game and he's working really hard now. And uh, I think all of those things that really annoyed me were just maturity. Last two years, he's been unbelievable. You mentioned in a previous radio interview that we did that you're going to try and tighten some things up about his swing and his game. Have you have you made any progress on that? Yeah, yeah, I have, and um, we're looking to uh, reduce the amount that he flies fires his body at it because he's you know he's 24, and if he keeps doing that when he's 40, he's probably going to snap it off. So um, we're trying to reduce the amount of um, yeah like throwing his body at the ball, keep control of the ground a bit better, reduce uh, the amount that the club leans forward at impact, which will mean that the ball flies higher. So at the moment, he's won two bigger tournaments in very windy conditions, you know, and he's a Royal Fremantle member, so he's got used to playing in the wind, and we need him to actually hit it higher, especially when he goes into, you know, to the United States. Why is that? So hold the greens and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, because the course is all about carry there. Yep. So we need to carry the trouble, carry the bunkering. Uh, we need to um, make sure he can stop the balls on the greens. It's it's more uh, plotting your way around in in um, in America, whereas in Europe and Australia, it's more about finessing your way around and and being a bit more artistic. Do we have others on the landscape? Who who else are you working with that you think um, are destined for higher honours? I think um, Hayden Hopewell at the moment and Josh Greer are actually really good players. I think, um, you know, we haven't seen the best of them because COVID sort of stopped them from leaving the state for a fair while. So, um, you know, and, and they're probably a little bit behind in experience, but they're very, very talented golfers. Um, and we've got, a, uh, you know, Maddie Tolchard's over in America. She's been, um, she's at Oklahoma State University. She's a golfer of the year for that um, section, which is like 15 colleges. Yeah, she's an All-American, uh, very good golfer from Gosnells. And uh, Josiah Edwards is is new on the scene and he just won a national junior event by 18 shots. He's only 15, so he's going to ride as well. How old are they when you get them now on the pathway? Getting them sort of 13, 13 yep. 14. I still like them to play other sports. Um, I don't like... Um, you know, playing one sport until they're sort of 16. Um, I still think there's a really big part that's, that team sport has to play. You know, you become good individuals through team sport, not the, um, not the other way around. So, um, yeah, I think um, 13 is about the right age. How often do you get to talk to your stars when they're away on tour? Every couple of days. Yep. Yeah, we're, you know, the world's a lot smaller place than it used to be, so I'm on the phone, don't get in video. Every couple of days, um, makes for the late nights, you know, because they're in the states and and I'm in Perth. But um, yeah, when we travel, maybe every six weeks we're travelling just to, just to do maintenance um, during the off season, which is now pre-seasons in January. Um, seeing them every second day for four or five hours. Is golf in WA in a good place? You think? I could be better. I think um, COVID really restricted us for a long time. I think you know we're still. You know, our elite players at an amateur level are probably the best in the country. Um, 
both male and female. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people playing, but I think that the communication between the amateur body and the professional body could still be better. And I think, um, you know, we still need to be realizing that we are a domestic sport being played at an international level and we need to keep an eye on what's happening internationally. And at the moment, I think, you know, that could be done a lot better. How long will we see you continue to coach? How long's a piece of string, Mark? I don't know. I'm still enjoying um, it. I'm probably more passionate now than I have been. I've like uh, I've got, um, you know, this year we're going to tick off. We're going to we're going to get a world number one ranked player from this state. Um, well, at least I bloody well hope so. But uh, that's my goal, and hopefully another girl in the top ten. And once we've achieved those two things, and Min's secured a PJ Tour start, then I'll definitely be coaching. But it might be um, less people. One more before I let you go. What do you make of LIV golf? I think, you know, we've just had Cam Smith play the Australian Open, the Australian PGA Championship. So um, the question should be, what do I think of the PGA Tour? Right. Because the PGA Tour runs everything. And um, I think that that in itself is a, is an indictment on, on the PGA Tour. I think... Um, you know, PJ Tour has killed Australian golf at a at tournament level. I think it's killed a number of you know South South African golf. It's killed um, a number of things, and I think Live is fighting back. And so um, I'm I never I wasn't pro Live at the start, but I probably am pro Live now because I think um, it's changing some of the things that have been a problem in golf for a long time. And bringing top-level golf back yeah. to where it should be in places like Australia. Absolutely. Richie, thank you very much for joining us today. Good luck with your endeavours in getting that world number one and another person in the women's top ten, and hopefully Minwoo Lee secures his, uh, his PGA Tour card as well. You've been listening to Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We are brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And thank you to Richie Smith for joining us on the show today. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.